So tonight we're going to be in uh, Job chapter 23. Job 23. And so I'll, what I'll do is I'll just give a little bit of background on Job. Uh, since we're starting in the middle, give some context uh, to it. Um, then I'll read the passage. It's fairly short. It's 17 verses. And then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the verse-by-verse uh, -verse, uh, teaching, if you will. So Job, many uh, feel it could be the oldest book, actually, you know, that was written first. Uh, not that it's the stories that are the beginning, but that it was just the first one that was written down. We're not really sure. You know, why is that important? Uh, to me, that's important because that means God's Word <laughs> is timeless, right? It's been around from the beginning, and, uh, and that should be greatly reassuring to us that it's always been there. Uh, his truth and His love endures forever is what it shows to me, and it shows that God's teachings were known even prior to being written down, maybe not as a full revelation of God that we have on this side of the cross, but there is a real knowledge of God is what it tells us. So who is Job? Some believe Job is uh, Jobab, which was the second king of Edom. So if you remember, the Edomites came from Esau, so Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. So Esau was the beginning of the Edomite kingdom, and Jobab was the actual second king of Edom. We're not 100% sure, but that some believe that uh, he, he may be that king. Uh, obviously a descendant of Abraham. Moses, if uh, assuming that is the second king of Edom, Moses probably would have heard the stories of Job when Moses was with the Midians in the wilderness after he fled Egypt. So he was probably hearing much about Job. Perhaps it was written around 1500 BC. Uh, we don't know for sure. But the dates aren't really as important as the content of, of the book. The book is written in a form of uh, Hebrew poetry, and so Hebrew poetry isn't the rhyming type. It's not Jack and Jill went up the hill. It's, it's more of a contrasting of ideas, you know, like, oh, we are so low, but God is so great. And it's just the contrasting of ideas uh, one after another. And it's, it's kind of beautiful. It's, it's different uh, if you're used to rhyming, but it, it's, uh, there's great beauty in it. It could be titled The Problem of Suffering. Uh, because there is much suffering that is talked about in this book, but it's what a book for the ages. I think there's a little bit of suffering uh, going on uh, as we speak, but a book for the ages because we live in the, uh, we could say the me, me, me generation, or the why me, or woe is me, or why is this happening to me generation. Um, and, you know, it just tends to be anything about, about us or self. Uh, Chuck Smith has a funny saying about that where he said, if you would take a panoramic picture of this room right now so you'd get everybody in the picture and he'd hand a picture out to each and every one of us, who would you look for first? <laughs> and it's true. Yeah, you go, oh, hey, there I am. You know, it's just kind of what we do. We're drawn to self. And uh, so the background on Job, since we're entering into the middle, we're coming in at chapter 23 out of uh, 42 chapters. Um, I just give a little bit of a background. So the first two chapters are the prologue, uh, which uh, you know explains why this is happening to Job. You know what what is going on. So we know what's happening to Job, but obviously Job doesn't know what's happening and why this is happening to him. Um, as we said, of uh, being perhaps the second king of Edom, he was a king. He was a kingly person. He was righteous and he was benevolent and he was a good man. We know that about him. 
And so Satan comes along and accuses him of having ulterior motives and that he um, that he's just being this way. He's just in it for the money because he was a wealthy man. And he's just in it for the money, but he's actually a greedy, selfish man. He's, gonna be, he's in it for the selfish gain. And so God lets Satan test um, this accusation, which that is a key point that we're going to tuck that away to the end because that's going to come back into the teaching. But God lets Satan test this accusation. So we, it's important to know God is in control here. Chapter 3 is Job's complaint, right? So we know what happened to Job is he lost all of his family, not his wife, but he lost all of his children. He lost all of his animals, his livestock, his wealth, and he even lost a good bit of his health, right? He had a lot of uh, tough things going on to him physically. And so he said, it's better if I was never born. That's what Job cries out in chapter 3. In chapters 4 through 14, we have the first round of speeches. So Job is is visited by uh, three, we call friends, quote-unquote friends. There perhaps could be other kings from neighboring uh, areas that came to see him because here's this king that was struck down for really a, a puzzling reason. So they're coming, hey, what happened to this guy? He's kind of one of us, and they're coming in. So those three were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so in chapters 4 through 14, we have the first round of speeches from those three guys and also Job's replies to those speeches. In chapters 15 through 21, we have the second round of speeches from those three fellows and and Job's replies to them. And then Job 22 through 26, it's the third round of speeches. And again, Job's replies to those speeches. And so here we are entering in at Job chapter 23. We're in the middle of this third round of speeches and Job's getting getting ready to reply to Eliphaz. So let us turn to Job 23. It says, Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words with which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold." My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. Verse 12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How beautiful is that? I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just come to you uh, in the middle of this story, Lord. We just ask you to speak your truth uh, to us, Lord, uh, in a way that helps us to preach this truth to ourselves after we leave this place tonight, Lord. Uh, please encourage us through it, even though it's uh, in amongst uh, difficulties and trials, Lord. Lord, may uh, you show us the way uh, uh, to you, Lord, uh, to draw us near to you, Lord, and uh, so that you will draw near to us. And do that here this evening, Lord, right now as we get into your word. Amen. So this is the seventh response from Job. And so in some ways, it's like a 15-round fight. You know, he's, he's in this with, with these guys, and they're, they're hitting him with a lot of things, and he's replying to it. So this is now the seventh reply to a seventh, I won't say argument, but his friends coming at him with lots of thoughts and suggestions. And so in verse 1 and 2, it says, Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. And so Job is stating that he is in really worse shape than he looks. And they don't really understand how bad it is, but he can't even complain enough to really show how bad he is actually doing. And most scholars here believe that Job is asking for somewhat of a, of a complete judgment in his life in these next verses. Like, he, hey, I just want to go before the judge. Judge my life. And, uh, uh, you know, and that's, we have to be very careful about that. Uh, Chuck Smith even says, that's one, one thing that I would never ask <laughs> is for the judgment of God, right? And, you know, don't go there. And because uh, and he says he could plead his case to him. And J. Vernon McGee says the only thing we should ever plead is guilty before the Lord, right? Because that's what we are. And so while the commentators seem to think that Job is kind of crazy asking for the Lord's judgment here, I see it at least in this reply, in these specific verses, a little different, so not to take it out of context. He's not really talking to God, he's talking to Eliphaz. And so he's, he's in the seventh response to his what I'll call Yehu friends, <laughs> that... Um, because they have falsely accused him of certain things, and they're telling him to confess his sins that he didn't commit, and then repent from those sins, which doesn't work for Job. How, how could it work for Job? Because he didn't do these specific things. And so I think it's more he's talking to God about these specific things that his friends are accusing him of. So in verses 3 through 7, we see, Oh, that I... Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words with which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So he's really responding out loud in front of Eliphaz, uh, saying, Oh, you know, how you fool, you have it so wrong. You're of no help to me, Eliphaz. You're accusing me of things that I did not do. And so what were those things? We, we didn't read them tonight, but they happened in the chapters before. But the things they accused them of were being prideful. They accused them of being covet, of covetousness, and they accused them of having a lack of mercy and compassion. And then they really accused them of something uh, tough, which was that they accused him of hiding his sins, which then made him a hypocrite because he wouldn't admit that he was a sinner. They just thought, well, you're just hiding it, so you're just being a hypocrite. And then um, telling him that, you know, then you're telling me to get 
that the remedy is to get out of trouble for doing the things that I did not do, and that I'm so innocent of these things that you're falsely accusing me of, that I'm ready to go before the Lord and be judged for these things that you're accusing me of just to shut you up. <laughs> you know, Lord, just, you know, I want to go before the Lord because these people are wrong. I know the Lord is going to judge me rightly. And so I think he's only asking for judgment of this mini case. He's asking for, hey, give me some judgment on these things because I know I'm not guilty of, of these things. And so, um, so if you think about it, sometimes when you're writing a sentence, you get to a point where you have to put something in parentheses. <laughs> and then sometimes as you're writing what's in parentheses, you realize, well, I've got to put something else in parentheses. And so if, if you will, this is like the inner parentheses stuff. This isn't the whole judgment of his life. This is the inner parentheses thing. This is just these things that he's being accused of. I believe that's what it's saying. And so it appears for he's really just asking for judgment on these things so that he can be proved innocent and convince Eliphaz, who's there talking to him right now, that he is really wrong, you know? And not just to show that he's wrong and just to shut him up, but I think really just to show that, um, that he's guilty. <laughs> you know, Eliphaz, you're guilty of false accusations. And, you know, one reason I suppose that would be is, one, yeah, shutting him up just so he can kind of stop saying these things to him, but also that Eliphaz would then realize he's wrong and maybe, perhaps, maybe, he could really then help Job find out really what's going on in his life. And so to me, this is a real gut check of how to be a friend. And so how to give godly advice to a friend who is suffering and is going through suffering, how to look under the hood with your friend before you just start accusing them or us, you know, I could speak for men, you know, we're, we like to fix things. So we, you know, our wives or our significant others are talking to us, we want to pull out the toolbox right away and start fixing the problems when all they want us to do is just listen to them, just hear me out. I just need you to listen and not fix it. And so, um, you know, before we get into accusing them, just love them now and save the trial for later, or even better yet, don't even have a trial, right? Just love on them, you know. So verse 6, it says, Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. Meaning in this particular situation, you know, would God give me, you know, give me the full time for my full life and judgment on everything that I've ever done? You know, no, he's not going to do that, but he's going to hear me out. And these things that I'm being accused of, he would at least give me that time of day and be able to uh, hear me out on these matters. He would care enough to take note of me uh, so that he could, so that my, my opponent here is going to see that I'm not guilty of these things. Verse 7, it says, There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So basically, he would clear me of these false accusations, Job's saying, so that they go away forever. These particular things would go away uh, forever, and they would be done with them. The case would be closed with them, and they could move on. Now, move on to what? <laughs> well, it do he doesn't know, and that's what he's still trying to figure out in all of this. And he knows one thing, though. I'm not guilty of this stuff. And I need to move on to what God is doing here in my life. And so Job is really longing to understand what God is doing here. What is he telling me? What is he teaching me through this? In essence, if God would just reveal to me his purpose here, if I only could speak to God. Is that tracking with anyone? <laughs> Sometimes we find ourselves in these things where God is, we're not hearing from God. So verses 8 and 9 say, look, I go forward, but he is not there. 
and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I can't behold him. And when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. And again, I believe Job is saying, look, I'm so innocent of these things, I would go before the perfect God judge, but guess what? I can't find him. (laughs) You know, I'm looking for him everywhere, but I can't see him. All I have is you here telling me (laughs) and that, you know, I know you're wrong, but I would just so love to see and hear and feel, feel him. But for some reason, he's just not revealing himself to me. If we would turn to James uh, chapter 4 for a moment, James 4, uh, verses 7, uh, 7 in the beginning of verse 8. And 4-7, in the beginning of verse 8, it says this, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And this is a really important part. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So I'm not a, a Christian counselor, but if I would give any advice to any person for anything that's going on in anyone's life, it would be this verse, right? Where do you start? If you're having great joy in your life, hey, man, draw near to God. Hug him because he's, he's loving on you. If you're going through great, difficult situation, draw near to God because you're guaranteed he's going to draw near to you. But it implies something here. It's basically saying we're not completely near God and that we're separated from him. We have to draw near to him, and then he has to draw near to us. So there's something that's separating us. We know Romans 3.23 that we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But what does that separation really look like in in our lives? Uh, You know, we may be out in front of the Lord, you know, and we may need to step out of the way and let him get back in front of us. Or we may may just need to stop and let him (laughs) run into us and catch us and and jump on our backs and we can carry him around. Uh, Maybe it's, uh, you know, he's, uh, we need to pursue him to the left and to the right, to the front, to the back, uh, maybe we just need to get going and catch up. Maybe he's far out in front of us and we've, we've stopped. We've been distracted along the way. And maybe it means that you're in a valley and he's on the mountain and you got to get up to the top of that mountain or you're on a mountain, but he's on the other mountain. <laughs> and to get there, you're going to have to go through a valley uh, to get over to see him. It really, makes stock, it really makes you take stock of where you are in relation to where God is not geographically speaking, but with regards to a spiritual nearness or a distance. It could be in terms of time. Maybe in the past, you were so far away from God, but now, man, you're walking lockstep with the Lord, you know, and you're so close to Him. You're in the Word daily. You're praying daily. uh, You're in fellowship with Him, and it's awesome. Or maybe you were saved a long time ago, and you were so close to Him then, but now you've drifted afar. It's sort of like that ship that's you know, the rudder's one millimeter off and you're thinking you're going to England, you end up in South Africa, you know, just a little bit and you find out, wow, where'd happened? Where did I go? And you're separated uh, from God. So where are you in relation to God? Where am I in relation to him? And where, where is God? Oswald Chambers had a devotional about a year and a half ago and it said, why can I not follow you now by Oswald Chambers? And so use John 13, 37, where Peter says to Jesus, and it says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? 
And he says, there are times when you can't understand why you cannot do what you want to do. When God brings a time of waiting and appears to be unresponsive, don't fill it with busyness. Just wait. That's hard for us to hear. The time of waiting may come to teach you about the meaning of sanctification, to be set apart from sin and to be made holy, or it may come after the process of sanctification has begun and, be, and to teach you what service means. Never run before God gives you His direction. If, he, if you have the slightest doubt, then He is not guiding. Whenever there is doubt, wait. At first, you may see clearly what God's will is, maybe the severance of a friendship, the breaking off of a business relationship, or something else that you feel is distinctly God's will for you to do. But never act on the impulse of that feeling. If you do, you will cause difficult situations to arise, which will take you years to untangle. But just wait for God's timing, and He will do it without any heartache or disappointment. When it is a question of the providential will of God, wait for God to move. And I think that is so fitting um, that Xander was teaching on uh, Isaiah 36 and 37 on Sunday because that's exactly what he was teaching about, right? I mean, he was teaching on Psalms 46 to 48, but it was the backdrop was Isaiah 36 and 37. And if you didn't hear what that message was, basically Israel was in huge trouble, right? Uh, the northern kingdom was already taken over. Uh, all of the other cities of Judah have been kind of ransacked, and now there's Jerusalem is the only thing that's left. And they were surrounded by almost 200,000 enemy troops, <laughs> and they were being mocked, uh, you know, and the servant of the enemy king was mocking God himself. They were backed in a corner. They were surrounded, threatened, bullied, taunted, and, uh, you know, they, they were told, uh, they told Israel all the other gods of all the other nations failed, right? And they fell to Assyria. You know, they told the people not to listen to their king, Hezekiah, and don't, be li don't listen to him and be annihilated just like all the other nations that fell before. And those nations were even stronger than you, Israel. He said, come with me, like follow us. And Israel was so desperate that they were contemplating selling out to Egypt, which we always know Egypt is a picture of sin in the Bible, but they were going to sell out to Egypt to fight with them against Syria instead of partnering with God. <laughs> We, are always, we always have choices, don't we? We either choose God or we choose ourselves or our own way. And recall what John, James 4.8 says. What are we supposed to do? Draw near to God, and He is going to draw near to you. Fortunately, King Hezekiah knew James 4.8 even before it was written, right? How does he know that? Well, the Holy Spirit, right? And he drew near to God by speaking his concerns through his servants to the man of God, Isaiah. And so if you want to turn with me again, we can just read a few, few verses. Um, Isaiah 37, uh, verse 4. Isaiah 37, verse 4. says, It may be... It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rebshakeh, who was the servant of the enemy king, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. 
So there's only a small remnant left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, this is what you should say to your master, thus says the Lord. So the Lord spoke and told Hezekiah this, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So they weren't blaspheming King Hezekiah, they were blaspheming the Lord. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Such encouragement, right? He drew near to God. (laughs) Now God's drawing near to him. But the enemy king doesn't give up yet. He sends a letter to King Hezekiah saying, Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And he said, said, so saying that, he said, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you, (laughs) saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's falsely accusing God here again, saying, don't let your God deceive you. And Hezekiah then, what did he do? He took the letter out and spread it before the Lord. And he prayed before the Lord. And I won't read the whole prayer, but that was a humbly and beautiful prayer. You were the God between the cherubim. You know, he just cried out, you make the wood that these enemies made idols out of, you know, and it was so beautiful. It's such a different course than partnering with Egypt. And so he preached the truth into himself, which is a great lesson for us. And in this same light, getting back to Job in verse 10, we see what Job is going to do. So Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way I take, that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And so he's, pre- he's starting to preach into himself. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> but all I know is that he knows the way that I take, and when he's tested me, he's putting me through a test, I am going to come forth as gold. And the refining process is such an amazing analogy here because gold, when it's in the earth, right? We'll say in the world, when it's in the earth, it's in the dark, it's impure. It can't be used for anything. It doesn't have any value. Just like us, when we're in the world and we're in the dark and we're impure, we're of absolutely no value. But the refiner has to seek out the gold. It's got to go dig it out. God has to come seek us out. Uh, The refiner disturbs the ground, rustles it out, digs it out. God comes searching for us and digs us out of where we are. The refiner then melts it with extreme heat. So such extreme heat is applied to it. Why? To bring the impurities out, called dross. Comes to the top, scrape it off. The dross is removed. God tests us with trials. Why? He wants to bring the impurities out of our lives. So the process is repeated multiple times to get the pure gold. These are the repeated trials that God puts us through. Again, why? He wants us to be pure. It's often said that when a refiner, the refiner could see the reflect, his reflection in the gold, he knew it was done. And so as God does with us, when he refines us and he refines us and he refines us, he sees his reflection in us. And gold is a sign of divinity. The gift of gold to the Christ child was, a symbolic, was symbolic of his divinity. The divinity, it was God in flesh. When God had tested Job, he said, he shall come forth as gold, tramp, transformed into a divine likeness to God. 
sanctification. He still admits that he has sins. He's not perfect. Um, He's not without flaws, but God is burning out the impurities and the sins, and when they're all gone, and this is outer parenthesis stuff now that he's talking about, right? When it's all gone, man, I am going to be pure as gold. So verse 11 and 12 says, My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Wow. I mean, that's, that's uh, such a word picture there. So even way back then, this oldest book that was written down, with, there was the word of God. And so, you know, Chuck Smith teaches a lot on the natural man and the spiritual man. And he always says, you know, as believers, you know, there's the rub. <laughs> you know, we've got the natural man and the spiritual man. And the spirit is lusting against the flesh and the flesh is lusting against the spirit. And so we take heed to feed the natural man. Some of us feed a little too good, you know. But often for the spiritual man, you know, we starve the spiritual man. And so oftentimes we're far too anemic on our spiritual man. And the only food for the spiritual man or woman is the Word of God. And Job has been feeding on it. He places priority on feeding the spiritual man over the natural man. In the Gospel of John, Jesus states that if you love me, keep my commandments. Job has been keeping them. He's been living it. And it really makes it tough for, tough for him and for us even to understand why God is not talking to Job here. Why is he remaining silent? Verse 13 and 14 says, but he is unique. This is Job speaking out, right? But he is unique, meaning God is unique. And who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs, this is beautiful, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. So here he's preaching into himself, right? Who is God? <laughs> he's drawing near to God, God drawing not near to him. He's like, man, who, what can make him change? In other words, even though I desire to be in his court, getting my freedom <laughs> from these un, this unrighteous judgment of, of this guy Eliphaz that's here, right? I'm sitting here with you, I'm waiting for my next appointment. I surrender to his timing, right? His schedule. And so like Hezekiah, he wanted to set his appointment with Egypt, with sin. And God said, set your appointment with me. If you love me, keep my commandments, right? Draw near to me and let me perform your appointments. And so he pleases to do his perfect will. Whatever his soul desires, as he is perfect, so how can I ask him to change his appointments? Even as much as I want to be out of Eliphaz's presence and I want to be with the Lord, who am I to ask, who is Job speaking, who am I to ask and to ask him to change because he's not going to change for me? So that's a a question for us. Whose calendar are we operating with? (laughs) Whose appointments are we trying to schedule and meet with? Is that ours or is it his? I'm humbled by the magnitude (laughs) of that thought. Job is saying, I trust that he is at work on my next appointments. Just maybe, just maybe it's with him, right? <laughs> so he's like, I don't want to be here. I want to be there. But hey, I, I, I surrender my will to have it my way. So I'm here. Uh, but just maybe it'll be with him. But <laughs> maybe it's going to be somebody worse than Eliphaz, because I'm not sure where this is going, right? And so verse 15 through 17 says, 
Therefore, Job cries out, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from me. And if you could think about that, you know, he wasn't cut off from deep darkness or the presence of darkness. Not only that, he took him into the deep darkness. You, know, you ever been in a room where you can't see anything? You got total darkness? <laughs> I mean, it's weird, right? You're like, I, I, don't, I can't even move because I can't see anything. And so he's already taken him into that place, right? And he doesn't know how far he's going to go. So in other words, Job's saying, I'm afraid to consider what the next appointment might be. My heart is weak thinking about it as God is in control here, not me, and he has dished out all of this anguish, and I don't know why. He doesn't seem to have a lower limitation of where he wants to take me, so I'm not sure if I've reached the bottom depth of darkness yet, and that thought terrifies me, is what Job was saying. Can anyone relate to that? (laughs) These are clearly words (laughs) for our day uh, today. But we know Job didn't have the revelation of Christ the Messiah, however we do, (laughs) And as Christ was forsaken on the cross, he suffered, died, buried, and we know he descended, right? He descended into hell. So why would we expect anything less? (laughs) You know, if that's the man who knew no sin, and that's the way what happened to him, who is it of us that can say, I deserve better than that, right? So why Job 23 tonight? Well, you know, it has the fall of the garden, you know, heaven on earth. Job had everything. And then it was all taken from him. He was separated from God. The wages of sin is death, pain, suffering. There was unrighteous judgment and righteous judgment. The unrighteous judgment of his friends and the righteous judgment of God. There was pride of his friends. And maybe later in the later chapters, Job was a little bit prideful himself that God dealt with. There was reading of the word and relying on it for food and strength and feeding the spiritual, spiritual man. And there's wrong and right interpretation and application of the word. There were hints of a mediator in the court. You know, the upright are going to find me innocent here, right? And so there were trials. There were complaints of trials. There were praising of trials in the middle of them. There was humility, fear of God in the middle of trials, not knowing where and when it will end, but perseverance based on a knowing hope, but yet a fearing awe of the Lord at the same time. And all of this is in one chapter in the middle of Job. Boy, what a reminder that we need to read and understand the full counsel of God. What a blessing, not just to read it, but to understand that to truly find Him, we have to experience His Word lived out in us and in our lives. This is the essence of a faith journey of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, being transformed into His likeness, not how we want it or how we would do it, but how... He does it and is doing it in you and me. So where are you and where are we on this journey? You know, I had a friend uh, at the time when the Lord gave me this teaching the first time. He was being put through fiery trials on several fronts. And he knew. He knew the word. He was a pastor. But he still didn't like it. He said, I just don't like it. I mean, I don't like going through this. It's hard, he said. And so his friends prayed for him and they spoke to him. And then he read the word of God. and the, The word of God revealed to him that while you weep tonight, joy comes in the morning. And he had total peace about it, right? And if you could turn to James 5, 11, 
back to James again and see this. This is what James has written about Job. And we also know even, even earlier than James 5, we know at the very beginning of the book of James when Tim was teaching it, <laughs> count it all joy, right? When you're going through the trials, don't count it as something strange because God's at work to, to perfect you right through it. And so in James 5.11, we, we hear this though, and this is, this is great. And this is, I said, tuck it away till later. So here's later. So indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end, and this, you can't miss this part, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord, what was intended by the Lord? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. <laughs> so I know a lot of Old Testament believers, oh, it's fire brimstone, it's a you know, rough God. No, this is a God that's very compassionate and merciful. So I don't want to be the, uh, the spoiler, right, of the movie here, but, right, we know what happens to Job after this. You know, Job goes through a lot more. There's 42 chapters and all, but we understand that even though he lost all his children, he lost all his livestock, he lost all his wealth, all his riches, a lot of his health, um, that all of that was restored and then some, right? It was doubly restored it was doubly blessed and so you know why did James say that last part you know what did the devil intend for Job at the beginning <laughs> he right he said you're out this for you're you're out there for ulterior motives man and for selfish gain so he intended to take Job down but what did God intend <laughs> for Job because a lot of people say why did he have to go through this right God had intended <laughs> right blessings and compassion and mercy. He knew Job wasn't going to leave. He already knew it. He said, go ahead and test them. You can test your accusations. I know what's going to come out. And he was brought forth as gold. So why do we ever choose the devil? <laughs> We're very bad at math, aren't we? That's all I can say, right? Why would we ever go there, right? The devil is cunning, I know. I'm not saying that we're going to see riches like Job on this side of eternity, right? That's not what I'm saying. This isn't prosperity preaching, right? Hey, do this and you're going to get double the wealth. That's not what I'm saying at all, right? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. You know, maybe God will choose to bless you that way. Maybe he won't, uh, maybe he won't bless you that way. But we sure, we will for sure, for sure, for sure obtain it on the other side of eternity, right? For all of us who have repented of our sins, surrender our lives to Christ, counting on the finished work of the cross, born again, born anew, we for sure will see his riches. In fact, it's all, it's all we're going to be able to see. <laughs> For God, it's love, right? That's all we're going to see is his love. How beautiful is that? And this is one of the greatest words of encouragement as we go through trials, that God meets us, sustains us, and loves us enough to change us, to transform us into his likeness by whatever means he chooses. For he is perfect and his love is perfect and his grace is sufficient and his methods and his means are also perfect and mine are not and yours are not. May we succumb to him and his means and his appointments and experience Christ like we never have before. And all of God's children said, amen, right? And just like Revelation, this is not scary once you know the ending and it should impact the way we approach life and especially the trials of life. And if you don't know this kind of love, either if you're here or if you're watching this video, if you've never truly repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, may today be the day of salvation 
come up and pray with us. And if you're on the video, please contact the church. The contact information will come up. We'd love to hear with you and pray the prayer of salvation for your life. So God bless you all, and may God guide us all this week. In Jesus' name, amen.